Thank you. Cheers, Andy. Um, okay, so we're carrying on in James today. Um, if you want to find it, we're in James 5, 1 to 6. Um, uh, so if you want to get to that, and then I will come to it in a minute. But the other day, um, about a month ago, I went to the cinema with uh, Mark and Rach over there, and Beck, my wife, for those who don't know. And we went to see a film called Hacksaw Ridge. Um, some of you will have seen Hacksaw Ridge. Some of you won't know what it is. Um, essentially, it's a film about a guy. It was in the Second World War. It's a true story. His name was Desmond, a, Doss. Desmond Doss. And Desmond Doss was a Seventh-day Adventist. And he, uh, he didn't believe in, in carrying guns. He didn't believe it was right to go to war and kill people. And so he ended up... He still went to war, but he went as a medic. And he saved people's lives, and I don't want to spoil the film if you get to see it. But what really challenged me when I came out of that film was, um, well, I, I, I sort of wondered, do I really believe what Jesus says when it comes, in that context, when it comes to, to uh, turn the other cheek and love your enemies? And that really challenged me. And that's, some of you know that's been challenging me for a while, and that really challenged me. Do I believe what Jesus said when it comes to that? But at the same time, I was starting to prepare this. And so I also had this thought of, do I actually believe what Jesus says about a lot of other things? Really, honestly, do I live in line with what Jesus teaches and the rest of the Bible teaches? And this particularly today is about poverty and also possessions and riches. And I don't think, I'll put it out there, and I include myself in this, that we really live according to Jesus' words on a lot of these things. We, we sort of pay lip service, but we don't necessarily live fully in the good of, of what Jesus teaches on these things. And of course, James was writing before the Gospels that we have existed. He was Jesus' brother. So he's writing very close to some of the things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount and other places. But as a bit of background... It's really background to the whole book, but particularly to this section. Uh, in Acts 8, 1 to 4, we have this story. It says that there was a great persecution. It broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen. He was the, uh, the guy that was stoned to death, the first martyr, and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And those who were scattered preached the word everywhere. So you have this group of believers, like you and me, who were scattered all over the area because of persecution. And they, they were preaching the gospel to people and churches were getting started. But the other thing that was happening was they were away from home, so they had to get jobs. So they started to take work in like labouring and working in the fields and all of that stuff. But what began to happen was the rich landowners, who may or may not have been fellow Christians, began to mistreat them and pay them lower than their wages, lower than their living wage and all of that stuff. So that's where we come to what James is saying today. So in, in, the, in the James passage, if you have it in front of you, James writes this. Listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. 
Your wealth has rotted and the moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived in in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. So James doesn't mince his words. James never minces his words. Jesus didn't mince his words either. It must have run in the family. Uh, And he has some really, really harsh things to say to these rich people who were robbing the Christians of their wages. And what this is, is a prophetic declaration. He declares prophetically against these rich people of what will happen to them because of their attitudes and because of how they're living their lives. And what we find out about them is, first of all, that they'd stored up treasure on earth. Their hearts were getting fat and their wallets were getting fat. They seemed to be people who loved their riches rather than other people or even God. And essentially, what they build is going to be brought down by God. That's what James is saying. All their nice clothes that they wear will be moth-eaten. And all the money in their banks will fade away. And even the health that they're boasting in will be destroyed. And there's two reasons for it. But the first reason is because they love their riches. Now Luke 12, 31, you'll have to turn there, but there's a story. There's a story of a rich man. Do you know the rich man who built the barns? Do you know the story? There's a rich man who builds barns. It's a parable that Jesus tells. And essentially this guy owns everything he could ever want. He's rich. And he decides that he wants them to have more. His barns are too small. He's not got enough space. So he decides he wants to build some bigger barns so he can store more of his things and build up more possessions for himself. And have more. And enjoy his abundant, nice possessions. And what happens is that God takes his life. It actually says that God says to him, you've been foolish. And today, I'm going to take your life. And other people end up getting what the man owned. And Jesus is talking about the danger of holding on to our riches, the danger of holding on to our things. And these are the words Jesus uses just before he tells the parable. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Listen to this. This speaks to our culture. Listen to this now. Life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. And then there's also a story of the rich young man. Do you remember him? He came to Jesus and said, how do I have eternal life? And Jesus said, sell what you have and give the money to the poor. But before that, he lists the commandments. He lists these commandments. But Jesus misses out one of the commandments. And the man says, I've obeyed all of the commandments. But Jesus knew he hadn't obeyed this one that he missed out, this not to commit idolatry. So he tells the man to give his money to the poor. And the man goes away sad because he knows that his riches are more important to him 
And Jesus doesn't chase him and say, oh, it's okay. Maybe you can come in another way. He lets him go. He knew this man loved his riches more than he loved God. And so here's the question. This has really challenged me recently. Here's the question to ask ourselves. How much time and energy and passion do we put into things more than God? And how much of our lives are lived to build up our possessions and things? Because I do it. I've got stuff all over the place. We've got stuff everywhere, haven't we? We've got a small house, but we have got stuff everywhere. We've got more than we need. So we were watching a programme, remember Beck's a documentary about minimalism. And it's about these people that have chosen to live with less. They, 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 they've, made a, they've made a decision to live with less. Now, I don't know if these people were Christians. We, we, I, I don't know. It didn't say they were, did it? But, but they've chosen to live a simple life. And there was a part of it that was kind of like another gospel. If you get rid of everything you've got and make your life simple, everything will be better for you. You'll feel better and you'll be free and you'll have more time and money. There was that. But, despite that, there's something of what Jesus taught in what they did. They were giving away, they were getting rid of their stuff and living simply because they knew, sometimes more than we do as followers of Jesus, they knew that what the world is telling them isn't true. You need the mortgage and the new car and the new sofa and the best possessions, all the newest things that have come out, the best gadgets. And all those things are okay, by the way. It's not wrong to have them, it's not wrong to be rich. But they could see better than we can sometimes that these things are more important to us in our life sometimes than God, than other people. We just live to consume things all the time. But I was so challenged by the documentary that while Beck did something during it, I started to get rid of some of the stuff we've got. I put some shoes and stuff in a bin bag. Like, we've got two feet each. Like, we don't need all the shoes and stuff that we had on our shoe rack. So I was getting rid of stuff. But it, we do. We have so much stuff all the time. And that's what these rich people were doing. That's one of the things they were doing. They were living for their things. And the things they had were distracting them from God. It's challenging, isn't it? That's our culture. That's our lives. That's my life. But there was something worse as well. That's the first thing. There was something worse they were doing. They were exploiting, and I hinted at this at the start, exploiting the poor people. Now, I could say they may have been fellow Christians, they may not have been, but they were exploiting poor people, they were holding back the riches that they had and exploiting the poor amongst them by not giving them the wages that they deserved. And by the way, I'm assuming that most of us here are rich in, in the sense of in the world, like some of us might have less money than others here, we might be fairly poor in a British sense, but most of us here are rich in a in a world sense. So I'm putting us in the category of the rich this morning. If you really are poor this morning, then you know, God knows that. And maybe it does or doesn't apply to you. But they were getting rich off the back of the poorest people. And they were holding back the money 
that should have been given to the poor. And so we may be thinking, we may be thinking, okay, Paul, I, I admit, I've got a few too many things, I listen to the adverts a bit too much, I buy things I don't need, my house is full of stuff, maybe I need to repent, maybe I need to get rid of some stuff, but I don't exploit poor people. So, I want to ask you, where do you buy your clothes from? And what sort of tea and coffee and sugar do you buy in the supermarket? Challenging, isn't it? Really challenging. See, I'm challenged by this myself. This is... I am. (laughs) Let me just give you some statistics here, okay? Where we buy some of our clothes from, the shops we buy our clothes from, okay? They're made by people who in some cases, and this is some of the clothes we buy, probably quite a lot of the clothes we buy, and other things, some cases are forced to work 72 hours straight without sleep. Those who complain are beaten and abused. Cases of verbal, verbal, sexual and physical abuse are common and documented. Some workers who live in the factory are allowed to use the bathroom for eight minutes a day. Including washing, brushing your teeth, going to the toilet, eight minutes a day. In a 72-hour, two-hour straight workday. They have to make sometimes a thousand items a day, which is one item a minute for 16.7 hours non-stop with no toilet breaks. And a lot of working areas don't meet safety regulations either. So fire doors are sometimes locked. I don't know if some of you remember this in April 2013. The 8th floor of the Bangladeshi factory collapsed. Do you remember that in the news? There were 1,000 deaths and 2,000 people plus injured. And some of the people that make our genes, they get all sorts of um, sickness because of the methods that they use to make them as well. Some textile factories in Indonesia, people earn two dollars a day. So I think is it rupees? Is that is that the uh, is that the money? Um, that's five thousand two hundred in their money. And the highest, the lowest living standard in their country is six thousand two hundred. So that's a thousand less than they need to live where they are. Just to put it into perspective, a McDonald's meal costs $5, so they need to work two and a half days to afford a McDonald's. And street food costs a dollar, so they need, they need oh, a beer as well, $2 for a beer, 16 hours to have a beer. 
this is real people's lives. And I've heard Christians say, well, at least they've got a job. I don't know if you've heard that. That, that, that maddens me. At least they've got a job. So you can go to your boss tomorrow and ask to work 100 hours this week. He'll give you £5 an hour to see if you pay your bills and then see if you're happy just to have a job. It's challenging, isn't it? But you might think that's far away, but that's... And look, it's really hard because we buy our clothes in, the, in shops and it's almost impossible. I, I've researched this. Almost impossible to find clothes that are not, in some sense, made unethically. That's the problem with the system. But are we aware of this? What do we do about it? Are we thinking more about where we shop? Let's bring it home here a bit more. What about the poor people that wear around every day? What about homeless people? What about other people that we maybe don't see? Maybe you do, but do you stop and buy homeless people drinks? Come and volunteer on a Monday or a Thursday. You know, whatever, with the homeless here. It's all around us every day. And we live lives that exploit those people in many ways. And Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. You know that one as well, I'm sure. That's a challenging one too. When he comes back, he gets two sets of people. One on his left, one on his right. And he says to all of them essentially the same thing. When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was in prison, did you visit me? When I was needy, did you help me, basically? And the ones on the right, and they all say together, when did we see you like this? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? When did we see you in prison? And Jesus' answer is when you saw them, you saw me, and how you treated them is how you treated me. People made in the image of God, loved by God. Some of them your own brothers and sisters in Christ. Because despite what they'll tell you on the God channel and things like that, being a Christian doesn't mean that you have lots of money and you're rich. Some of the people working in these places are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Never mind anybody else. We need to have all people. But even just bringing it into our own family worldwide. They're followers of Jesus like you and me. And it is difficult. And God knows that we live in a world where things are corrupt and fallen and broken, but are our hearts to begin to change that? Just get someone a cup of coffee or give a bit of money to people who help sweatshop workers or whatever. I don't know. So here's one of the biblical solutions to how we can start to, to do this. This is, this is the church, but they say charity begins at home. Uh, it's not in the Bible, that saying, but there's a, there's a truth to it. Charity begins at home. So in Acts 4, 32 to 37, here's another thing that challenged me when I read this. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any possessions of theirs was their own, but they shared everything they had 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was powerfully at work in them. Listen to this. That there was no needy person amongst them. This is the early church. There was no needy person amongst them. Because people sold what they had and shared what they had to help. Their community was so strong. And this is only in the church. This is like with us. Their community was so strong. They didn't see what they had as their own. Someone needed something. They sold it to get money to give to the person or, to, or they shared what they had. Does the church need, I don't know, does the church need 20 cars and 10 lawnmowers and the same set of books on every bookshelf even? You know what I mean? Like They, they, they shared what they had. They gave what they had to one another so that nobody was poor. There wasn't a needy person amongst them. Not a need. How many churches have you been in where there's been no needy people amongst them? It's because they live lives that were so given to one another. And that's where it begins. If we love our stuff too much, we won't give it away. If we listen to what the world's telling us too much, that we will want more, to consume more and have more and take more, but we won't give it. And I'm not saying that any of us here are generous, because I know that we are, but it's just being reminded again that God's heart is generous to us. And we are to be generous people to one another. It's one of our business values, actually. They held everything so lightly that nobody was poor. I mean, there's a lot of information here, and this is just, we just scratch the surface when we say we need to do this. It is just scratching the surface. How do we live like this? But maybe it's just time to start giving small things to each other. If someone needs something, help them. It makes us have a generous heart, which will then flow out to other people. We don't know Jesus. It's just rethinking what our community as church looks like. Maybe with some of our community groups we've gotten, well, I can say something about that too, actually. Get into one if you're not in one. There's plenty of, well, there's some community groups. There could be more. Maybe it's to start in our small communities to give to one another there. Maybe that's where we begin. But this is God's heart. God's heart is for the poor. He loves all of us. But he has a particular heart for the poor. Jesus was poor, remember? Jesus wasn't poor with riches, he was poor. And I hope God's moving our hearts, even to begin to think about how we can work with God here, where we are, to help the neediest people by feeding them and caring for them and giving to them. I just want to share something with you. Um, coming to an end really now, but do you, has anyone heard of William Booth? Do you know who William Booth is? 
founder of the Salvation Army. Some of you will have heard this before. He had a vision um, in his life. And the Salvation Army, of course, they do all of this stuff. They're really, really um, like blessed by God and gifted in, in, in generosity and they, they help the poor and the needy. But when you booth when he was alive, he had a vision. And I'm only going to read you the end of it. It's a long, drawn-out vision that God gave him. An actual vision, you know, like we used to talk about prophecy and visions and dreams. He had a, a, a vision, not a vision like an idea, a vision like he saw this. And William Booth saw this mountain in the sea. And on this mountain was a platform. And on the platform were people singing and praising and enjoying worship. And, some, and essentially the platform was a church. In the sea there were people drowning. And some people on the platform were jumping in and pulling people up onto the platform and others couldn't even see the people in the sea because they were too busy with what they were doing. But he ends his vision like this. And it really came back to my mind as we were worshipping today as well. This has challenged me a number of times over the years. He says, Does the surging sea look dark and dangerous? Unquestionably, it is so. There is no doubt that the leap for you, as for everyone who takes it, means difficulty and scorn and suffering. For you, it may mean more than this. It may mean death. He who beckons you from the sea, however, knows what it will mean, and knowing, he still calls you and bids you to come. You must do it. You cannot hold back. You have enjoyed yourself in Christianity long enough. You have had pleasant feelings, pleasant songs, pleasant meetings, and pleasant prospects. There has been much of human happiness, much clapping of hands and shouting of praises, very much of heaven on earth. Now then, go to God and tell him you are prepared as much as necessary to turn your back upon it all, and that you are willing to spend the rest of your days struggling in the midst of these perishing multitudes, whatever it may cost you. You must do it. With the light now broken in upon your mind and the call that is now sounding in your ears and the beckoning hands that are now before your eyes, you have no alternative. To go down amongst the perishing crowds is your duty. Your happiness from now on will consist in sharing their misery, your ease in sharing their pain, your crown in helping them to bear their cross. And your heaven going into the very jaws of hell to rescue them. And he said, will you do it? And we're talking about God moving amongst us as a church and going deeper with God. And this morning was a great time of worship. It came to my mind as we were worshipping this, so I put this in here. And it was a last-minute thing that I put that in there. We should be going to meetings, and we should be worshipping. We need to do that as part of who we are as a people. But if we're doing that, but not thinking about the cause of the poor, is God going to send his spirit in the fullness of his blessing on us? I don't know. All we do is go to prayer meetings and have worship meetings. Maybe there's more we need to do. I hope it's a deep challenge to us this morning. Because James does not hold back. That's why I didn't want to hold back either. Because this is God's heart for people. 
So, with William Booth's words echoing, will you do it? Will you go? Out of faith us. And if you want to respond, I'm sure you can come and have prayer and speak to people. I'm here. Keith's here. Mark's here. Other people are here. So I just want to pray for us. Father, thank you that you've given us so much. Thank you that you speak truth to us. I just pray for every person here that you will show us how we can bless the people made in your image who need you and need practical blessing and help. Lord, we know you love us and we know that you challenge us, but you challenge us because you love us. Give us grace to follow you to the people who need you most. Smooth by your spirit amongst us today, Jesus. Smooth by your spirit even now in this place. Just begin in our hearts. Just fresh. Give fresh. Give fresh understanding, power. The grace of God enabled them so that there was not anyone poor amongst them. Pray that you'll move by your spirit and by your grace and just begin to enable us to do what you're calling us to do. Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Amen.